Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are checking the emotional chart, circling the face that closely describes how we're feeling as we attempt to solve the conundrum about dissatisfaction, trend or choice. What do you think? Are you choosing to be dissatisfied, purposely turning your smile upside down and avoiding any joy as you struggle to remain unhappy? Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about and that's great. It means you're in the shrinking percentage of people who are actually satisfied with their life, personal and professional. But if not, let's get to the root of it. What gives? Benjamin Franklin said, let thy discontents be thy secrets. If the world knows them, twill despise thee and increase them. I tend to agree. Discontentment can spread like a nasty infection. Someone who's mildly discontented needs little push over the edge to full-on dissatisfaction. And what does that get you? In my personal opinion, it makes a very large hole that is harder, if not possible, to crawl out of. Ever heard Misery Loves Company? If the bandwagon passes by, let it pass, instead of flagging it down. First and foremost, happiness and satisfaction are conscious choices. Will there be trials and tribulations? Of course. But what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies inside of you, said Ralph Waldo Emerson. Whether you're curious or frustrated by the situation that surrounds us, let's take some time to figure some things out. Christopher Ingram proclaims Americans are getting more miserable, and there's data to prove it found at thewashingtonpost.com. Life in America keeps getting more miserable, according to the latest data from the General Social Survey, one of the longest-running and most highly regarded public opinion research projects in the nation. On a scale of 1 to 3, where 1 represents not too happy and 3 means very happy, Americans, on average, give themselves a 2.18, a hair above pretty happy. That's a significant decline from the nation's peak happiness as measured by the survey of the early 1990s. The change is driven by the number of people who say they're not too happy, 13% in 2008 versus 8% in 1990. That's a more than 50% increase. Other research confirms this trend. The latest World Happiness Report released this week finds that a separate measure of overall life satisfaction took a 6% plunge in the United States between 2007 and 2018. Even as the United States economy improved after the end of the Great Recession in 2009, happiness among adults did not rebound to the higher levels of the 1990s, continuing a slow decline ongoing since at least 2000. Economists have become more interested in happiness in recent years, partly because of the growing realization that traditional economic measures like unemployment or gross domestic product are incapable of fully capturing the state of human welfare. 
Happiness research is a useful antidote to the tendency of economists to focus exclusively on material detriments of social welfare. GDP is not itself the final objective of policy. There are many detriments of happiness in the United States. Aren't you happy about that? This year's World Happiness Report, for instance, focuses on the role of digital media, noting that many of the activities correlated with unhappiness among young Americans, spending time on the internet, listening to music alone, social media use, typically happen on a computer or cell phone. That study also cites the opioid epidemic and the poor state of American health in general as both drivers of symptoms of American unhappiness. Breaking out general social survey data among different demographic groups also offers some clues about the changing nature of American happiness. Republicans, for instance, have maintained a consistent happiness edge over Democrats since 1970. The two trend lines generally move in tandem and don't appear to show much response to change in the occupancy of the White House. One potential explanation is Republicans' greater religiosity, which other research has linked to happiness and life satisfaction. In the 1970s, the residents of rural areas were about 10% happier in absolute terms than large city counterparts. But the two groups are very close now, and some researchers suspect that the strong preference of urban life among millennials is a factor. Looking at responses by self-reported economic class offers a complicated picture of happiness. Americans identifying as lower or middle class report a modest decline in happiness since the 90s. But the picture is drastically different among the upper class, for whom happiness plateaued in the 90s, dropped steeply in about 2008, and has been then rising steadily ever since. Okay, it sounds like we're getting to the heart of it, but money aside, one of the largest drivers of happiness in the general social survey is health. As of 2018, the happiness gap between those who say their health is poor and those who say it's good or excellent is about one quarter of the entire scale in absolute terms. Rendered on a happiness scale of zero to 100, for instance, the least healthy would rate their well-being at about 38, while the healthiest would be somewhere near 65. Perhaps more concerning than the absolute gap between the two is the fact that it has grown over the years, fueled chiefly by a decline in happiness among those who say their health is poor. This suggests that illness in America is becoming more difficult to deal with and exerting a greater toll on our well-being. The potential culprits here are numerous. Soaring medical expenses likely play a role, as do the frustrations of dealing with private insurance companies that have a great deal of power in determining which ailments get covered and paid for. The last finding ties back to the data represented in the World Happiness Report. Our current state of national well-being is tied in large part to various public health challenges. The most daunting indicator in this regard may be the ongoing decline in life expectancy. The United States is in the midst of the longest ongoing decline in average life expectancy since World War I. This, despite the fact that the nation is in the midst of one of the longest economic expansions in its history. 
The declining life expectancy and happiness numbers suggest that the fruits of that expansion are not being distributed equally among the Americans who are making it happen. I, for one, choose happiness. Now, I don't have a t-shirt or a wall hanging or a pillow that expresses these sentiments, but it's just who I am, and I've said it over and over again. It's purely selfish. I hate to be in a bad mood. I really do. I, I don't mind an occasional sad day. You know, the kind where you like to eat really bad food for you, maybe stay in bed, have people wait on you and feel sorry for you. I do like those days every now and then. But the majority, 99.9% of the time, I like to be in a good mood. So if I can't fix it, I just let it go. So anytime I run across an issue, I do have a moment of problem solving. Sometimes it's a longer than a moment, but I initially try to figure out what can I do to get over, around, under, however I'm going to deal with this challenge. If I find out that it's out of my control, nothing that I can actually impact in any way, then I just let it go. Now, some people think that's crazy. I just let it roll off my back, but it's purely selfish. I don't like to be in a bad mood. I don't like to be down. I don't like to hold grudges. I don't like to be angry. I just don't. Now, some people do, and they hold on to that anger as this badge of honor. You know, I'm doing something about it because I'm mad, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make everybody else mad. I want everybody else to feel what I'm feeling and take it Uh, seriously and stand behind me. Negativity spreads like wildfire. I've already said it, misery loves company. But imagine how quickly negativity can spread. So sometimes when I talk, I talk about energy and your ability to share energy and impact other people. It's one of those things that we don't even really think about. We just do it. And it can impact somebody in a positive or a negative way. So think about it. You're having a good day. You're choosing happiness. You wake up. This is how you're going to be today. Everything that you see is slanted with that idea. If something looks wrong, you're looking for the right. You're turning your frown upside down, and you're trying to see the positive aspects of everything. Then you meet someone, eh, they're kind of on the fence. They're not really feeling it today. They're sort of in the middle. And you have a chance to spread sunshine, as crazy as that sounds. You can really impact their day, totally change their trajectory just by picking them up and spreading your positivity. Now you go back along your day, maybe spreading more to other people, but that person that you've just turned around for the day is also sharing it. Think about how quick that can catch fire. Now, in the same aspect, you can share it negatively. So if you're harnessing all this negative energy, you're mad about it, you're just ruminating over it, you know you can't fix it, it doesn't matter, you're just mad, and you share that with the person that's on the fence. Well, now you got a bad buddy who's now sharing that negativity and it's spreading faster than you can keep a hold of. Think about that. Be intentional. Also, if you're not feeling well, pick yourself up by picking others up. 
serving others in a positive way, whether it's just eye contact and a smile, opening a door for someone, helping somebody with a project, or something even more significant, you can really turn around and lift your own spirits by helping someone else. Let's keep trying to figure this out. Kristen Bialik informs that Americans are unhappy with family, social, or financial life. This is found at pewresearch.org. One in 10 Americans say they feel lonely or isolated from those around them all or most of the time. This is according to the Pew Research Center survey conducted earlier this year. While this is a small share of U.S. adults overall, the share rises significantly for some groups, including those who feel weak ties to the communities they live in and those who are financially stressed. Those dissatisfied with family, social, or community life are more likely to feel lonely or isolated. Frequent loneliness is linked to dissatisfaction with one's family, social, or community life. The survey found about 3 in 10, that's 28% of those dissatisfied with their family life, feel lonely all or most of the time, compared with just 7% of those satisfied with their family life. Satisfaction with one's social life follows a similar pattern. 26% of those dissatisfied with their social life are frequently lonely, compared with just 5% of those who are satisfied with their social life. It's unclear whether dissatisfaction with particular areas of life leads to feelings of loneliness or vice versa, or whether something else entirely is driving reported feelings of loneliness and isolation. One in five Americans who say they're not satisfied with the quality of life in their local community feel frequent loneliness roughly triple the 7% of Americans who feel satisfied with the quality of life in their community. See where we're going here. Frequent loneliness is also associated with lower community attachment and knowing fewer neighbors. Who knows their neighbors these days? Most of the time, people move around all the time. When is the last time you took a pie to your neighbor or asked them if you could watch their dogs or cats when they're out of town? I haven't either, so you're not alone. Those who feel not too or not at all attached to their local community, about 16%, are more likely than those who are somewhat or very attached, only 6%. And one in five Americans who say they don't know any of their neighbors report feeling lonely or isolated all or most of the time. This is double the share among those who know only some of their neighbors, just 10%. Personal finances are also related to feelings of loneliness. People who say they're somewhat or very dissatisfied with their personal financial situation are significantly more likely to express feeling frequent loneliness than those who are satisfied with their finances. 14% of those who say they don't have enough income to lead the kind of life they want report feeling lonely or isolated frequently, compared to just about 5% who don't feel this way. While loneliness is more common among some groups than others, the share of people who feel this way is fairly consistent across most major demographic groups. Roughly 1 in 10 Americans say they feel lonely all or most of the time across gender, racial and ethnic, and age groups. 
There are a few differences by community type or party affiliation. In addition, even parental status and the number of years spent living in a community aren't strongly correlated with feelings of loneliness or isolation. Marital status, however, is. Those who are divorced or have never been married, 17% each, are more than twice as likely to feel frequent loneliness than those who are married. You know, there is such power in connections. I stumbled upon that years and years ago, and I really didn't think about it. I've always been a super social person. I've always had a job where I've been out and about and meeting people, talking to people all day long. But a couple of things led up to me learning a little bit more about this. One of them was the time that I spent at the VA nursing home with my father. He was in there for about four years, and I was able to sit back and look around at some of the elderly adults in there and see that they really didn't have a lot of social interactions. Of course, they had the staff, which was great, and then some of them had really attentive families who would come every day for, you know, sometimes an hour or two and sometimes longer. But there were so many people that didn't have anybody. And it was very, very lonely. And I started talking to people and digging a little bit more into that because I wanted to find out why. Like, what's going on with that? How can you connect them? You know, I started thinking about not only our, our seniors that are in facilities, but the seniors that might have just retired. They're at home. They're trying to adjust to this retirement lifestyle, all this extra time on their hands, but yet not the same structure or routine or connections because they're not going into the office. They're not having meetings. They're not selling things. They're not inspiring or influencing decisions. They're just on their own. Now, some of these seniors have great uh, social circles. You know, they've, they play golf. They have dinner parties. They're involved in a lot of volunteerism, but there are some that really kept their head down and just worked their whole life, got into this routine, and then all of a sudden they look up and here they are retired and they're not really sure what to do with their time. You know, so many times we say, gosh, when I retire, I'm going to do all this stuff because I'm going to have all this extra time. And then you find out, whoa, what do I want to do with all this extra time? And now they're struggling to have the confidence to go out and meet people and get involved, a lot of self-doubt. You know, maybe they don't want to hear from me. Maybe they don't, you know, won't value what I have to say or, or the input that I could give. So I think groups are important. And I've said it before. I've run a couple of support groups, Women Connect and Senior Connect. And it's all about connecting people making the right atmosphere just to share, you know, talk, share stories, connect to positive things from your past. You know, sometimes we can tell the same story over and over again to our own family members, but if you could connect to a different group where all your stories are brand new, you know, how fun would that be? It's like a verbal scrapbook. You get to walk through your personal memories and share those, and then you connect with other people that say, Hey, I've got a story similar to that, or I remember a time that I did the same thing. You know, it's a chance to learn from others in like situations. The other thing is two-way conversations. You know, those have become almost a thing of the past. We learn so much about people through social media that when you meet them in the store, 
What's there to talk about? You've already seen their entire life story and posts play out. You know, sometimes I've often joked you're walking the other way because you already know what they have to say and you don't want to hear it. But a two-way conversation, you know, digging past the surface level information. How's the weather? We all know what the weather is. We can see outside. We can walk outside. And we have the weather right on our phones. Let's dig a little bit deeper. What happens after you catch up on work or kids or grandkids? How can we have more meaningful conversations? So it's important not to shut yourself away. Find ways to connect. If you don't know, reach out to me. I'll give you some different ideas. Isle answers why it's so hard to ever feel satisfied found at psychologytoday.com. Why are we perpetually restless and unsatisfied? We live in the safest, healthiest, most well-educated, most democratic time in history, and yet some part of the human psyche causes us to look for an escape from things stirring inside us constantly. As the 18th century poet Samuel Johnson said, my life is one long escape from myself. The truth is we're not wired to feel content or satisfied ever. There's a simple reason for that as expressed by researchers for the review of general psychology. If satisfaction and pleasure were permanent, there might be little incentive to continue seeking further benefits or advances. In other words, feeling contented wasn't good for the species. Our ancestors worked harder and strove further because they evolved to be perpetually perturbed, and so we remain today. There are four psychological factors that make satisfaction temporary. The first one, boredom. The links people will go to avoid boredom are shocking, literally. A 2014 study published in Science observed participants who were asked to sit in a room and think for 15 minutes. The room was empty except for a device that allowed participants to mildly but painfully electrocute themselves. Why would anyone want to do that, you might ask? When asked beforehand, every participant in the study said they would pay money to avoid being shocked. However, when left alone in the room with the machine and nothing else to do, 67% of men and 25% of women shocked themselves, and many did so multiple times. The study demonstrated that people dislike being alone with their thoughts so much that they'll prefer to do anything else even if that activity is negative. It's no surprise, therefore, that most of the top 25 websites in America sell escape from our daily drudgery, whether through shopping, celebrity gossip, or bite-sized doses of social interaction. The second psychological factor driving us is negativity bias. It's been defined as a phenomenon in which negative events are more salient and demand attention more powerfully than neutral or positive events. As the author of one study concluded, It appears to be a basic, pervasive fact of psychology that bad is stronger than good. Such pessimism begins very early in life. Babies begin to show signs of negativity bias starting at just seven months of age, suggesting this tendency is inborn. 
Researchers also believe that we tend to have an easier time recalling bad memories than good ones. Studies have found people are more likely to recall unhappy moments in their childhood, even if they would describe their upbringing as generally happy. Negative bias almost certainly gave us an evolutionary edge. Good things are nice, but bad things can kill you. That's why we pay attention to the bad stuff first and remember it better. Useful for the species, but what a bummer. The third factor, it's rumination. Our tendency to keep thinking about bad experiences. Are you on that loop? If you've ever chewed on something that you did or that someone did to you over and over and over again, then you've experienced rumination. This passive comparison of one's current situation with some unachieved standard can manifest in self-critical thoughts like, why can't I handle things better? As one study notes, by reflecting on what went wrong and how to rectify it, people may be able to discover sources of error or alternative strategies, ultimately leading to not repeating mistakes and possibly doing better in the future. That's another potentially useful process, but boy, can it make us miserable. A fourth factor may be the cruelest of all. It's hedonic adaptation, the tendency to quickly return to a baseline level of satisfaction no matter what happens to us in life. Hedonic adaptation is Mother Nature's bait and switch. All sorts of life events we think would make us happier actually don't, or at least not for long. As David Myers writes in The Pursuit of Happiness, Every desirable experience, passionate love, a spiritual high, the pleasure of a new possession, the exhilaration of success, is transitory. Of course, as with boredom, negativity bias, and rumination, there are evolutionary benefits to hedonic adaptation. As the author of one study explains, as new goals continually capture one's attention, one constantly strives to be happy without realizing that in the long run, such efforts are futile. Taken together, these four components add up to a lot of dissatisfaction in life, even if your circumstances are truly great. Humans are wired to pursue happiness, but we're not too well equipped to experience it. If you find yourself unhappy with life, that doesn't mean you've been defeated. Dissatisfaction to some degree is responsible for our species advancements. And if you never felt it, you'd be at a serious disadvantage. Discontent is not a reason to give up on success. Rather, it's a reason to introduce the opportunity for frequent and meaningful victories in your life. It's important to understand the struggle and hard times are just part of being human. High achievers push themselves through the discomfort and discontent rather than trying to escape it with distractions. Every day is a chance to live according to your values. Living out your values means spending your time purposefully on the things that you decide are important. You can do this very concretely if you build your values into your calendar. That means scheduling time for what matters most. At the end of the day, you can look at what you intend to do compared to what you ended up doing and celebrate your victory when you stayed on track. When you live up to your values, instead of distracting yourself from feeling discomfort and discontent, you become indistractable. 
Hey, raise your hand if you want things to slow down a bit. You know, give you some time to catch your breath. My goodness, how many new versions of everything do we need? I mean, I don't even know what we're up to on the iPhone. And what else does it do? It makes a call, you can text, you can get on the web. Like, how quick do you need all that to happen? Already, we're so far removed from the pioneer days. Can't we just be happy with where we are? I don't know about you, but I really would like to go back in time just a bit. I remember when it was so much easier, it seems like. Yes, all of this is super convenient, but just keeping up with things and then making yourself reliant on it and then it stops working? Oy. Are you ready for some staggering statistics? This is brought to you by Zipia. I love statistics. It really puts it in perspective because we're only concerned with our little world. Let's think about everything out in the real world. There are 4.95 billion internet users in the world as of 2023. There are 7.33 billion mobile phone users in the world. It's predicted that there will be 38.6 billion people connected with smartwatches around by 2025 and 50 billion in 2030. There are 1.3 million tech startups in the world. And you know, today, people are starting companies just to develop enough technology to get purchased. It's rampant. 93% of U.S. adults use the internet. It's estimated that 90% of the world's data, get this, was collected in the last two years. 90% of the world's data was collected in the last two years. There are over 600,000 new internet users each day on average. The worldwide annual growth of new internet users is 4.8%. Every second, are you ready for that? Every second just happened, an estimated 127 new devices around the world connected to the internet. Remember when the internet was kind of a cool thing? (laughs) 93% of U.S. adults use the internet, up from 52% who had adopted it in 2020. That's staggering. You know, when I go back and read historical fiction or even watch like earlier sitcoms or 80s movies, I was lucky enough to grow up in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and just thinking about how times have changed in that short period you know, how much more we were connected. We actually looked at each other in the face. We looked at the world. We we explored because we were trying to find each other. We didn't have texts. We didn't have uh, cell phones where we could, you know, quickly find where your buddies were. You like really had to scour the area or create little meetups and hangouts, which was so, I don't know, vital for growth and connection. And today it really scares me. You know, I remember my husband and I went on vacation and we were downtown. I think we were in Sacramento and we were walking around this beautiful park. And I was looking at all of the different sculptures and buildings down there. And it dawned on me and I called attention to it, which he had already noticed as well. Everybody was on their phone. I'm not joking. And then it became a mission like, let's really double check that and see that we're not just seeing a, you know, a cluster of people. No, everybody was on their phone. 
I couldn't believe it. And I'm not talking taking a important phone call, right, from the White House. I'm talking they were texting. I don't know what they were looking at. Scrolling, maybe, and missing just what was happening right there in the now, right around them. I just want to know, you know, I don't want to instill fear, but I want to know how that is going to affect us as we move forward. We already see it affecting us now in the communication styles from our young people and and even our adults. I hear it all the time. My husband won't put his phone down. He's always on his phone. He's always grabbing it. Or same thing. Sorry, guys, not just about you. Women too. You know, how many times do you go to the doctor's office and read a magazine? Nobody does that anymore. You grab your phone. You know, typically a doctor's office, it isn't really the place that you strike up a conversation. But what about the airport? When you're sitting at a gate, instead of having an interesting conversation with another traveler, you're on your phone, playing a game, reading, checking out articles, or just scrolling. Hmm. Matt Walsh explores why Gen Z is finding out that being an adult is hard. (laughs) It's found at thedailywire.com. One of humanity's great traditions is for older people to complain about the work ethic of younger people. Haven't we all said that? I think they've all said that through time. We've seen this pattern repeat with every generation in modern history, and we would probably see something similar if we could go back to a time before modern history. It seems likely that if you talk to a 45-year-old in 1200 BC, they would tell you that kids those days were a bunch of lazy, ungrateful whippersnappers. In fact, we don't have to speculate about this. We know that Aristotle, some 300 years before Christ, complained that young people of the day were high-minded and that they had not been humbled by life. Meanwhile, the Roman poet Horace in the first century BC, chastised young people as beardless and accused them of squandering their money, which tells us that the epidemic of beardless men goes all the way back to ancient Rome. A shocking discovery. The point is that there's nothing new under the sun and complaints by old fogies, like me, directed at youth are certainly no exception to that rule. However, just because a complaint is common doesn't make it necessarily invalid. In fact, if anything, it would seem to suggest the opposite. And these days, when it comes to concerns over a lack of work ethic among the current crop of young adults, all signs indicate that the concerns are well-founded. I don't know if they were true in Rome or Greece 2,000 years ago, but I know that, that here in the year 2023, Seems like we have a serious problem. In 2021, Time Magazine reported that young people are leaving their jobs in record numbers, and many of them are not getting new jobs at all. This trend does not seem to have slowed down. At the beginning of the year, CNBC reported that 70% of Gen Z and millennials are planning to leave their jobs. Of course, plenty of them will get new jobs or try to, but the number of young adults who have no job and are not in school has been trending upwards. As of 2022, over half of the Gen Z adults are living at home with their parents. That's right, I said half. The statistics are pretty familiar to most people, but the issue isn't simply Gen Z refusing to get jobs. It's how they behave once they have them. 
A survey of 1,300 employers and managers revealed a significant consensus that this group of young adults tend to be extremely difficult in the workplace. The New York Post reported some American business owners and managers hold a dismal view of Gen Z workers. Shocking new research has revealed. Resume builders surveyed 1,344 people in managerial positions across the different industries in the U.S. earlier, asking them about their experiences working with those born in 1997 or later. Almost half, 49% of respondents, declared it difficult to work with Gen Z, all or most of the time. While a staggering 79% said they find them the most difficult generation to have in the workplace. Of that majority, 59% said they had to fire a Gen Z employee, and 20% even claimed to have axed one of the young workers within a week of their start date. Managers and owners commonly cited entitlement and a lack of effort, motivation, and productivity as reasons why they are given the boot. This brings to mind all of the Gen Z-led trends we've discussed. Quiet quitting, bare minimum Mondays, and even recinitism. All just trendier and slightly more subtle ways of describing laziness. It's not always subtle, though. The quiet quitting trend was recently supplanted by loud quitting, which is exactly what it sounds like. Want to hear? Well, here is a fun little video about this new fad. I need you to come back early from your break. It's crazy out there. Oh, mm, no. <laughs> Sorry. I'm actually applying to jobs right now. I'm super busy. Trying to make sure I never have to come back here again. What? Why? Oh, because I'm miserable? <laughs> Mainly because of you. You're the worst. Excuse me? If I had a dollar for every time you make me question my sanity, I think I'd be retired and be able to escape this perpetual state of misery. You take advantage of us like a corrupt politician makes false promises. Okay, that's enough. Hello? Oh my god, hi! Yes, yes, I am available tomorrow for an interview. Okay, yeah. Really looking forward to it too. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Oh my god, I'm glad you're still here. Um, I won't be able to make it to work tomorrow. Sorry. Just a heads up. Veronica, this is on Oh, it's time for me to clock in. Hopefully for the last time. Oh boy. I hope none of you have had to go through that, but I did have some interesting ones in my career as well. One day, I had someone call me and tell me they couldn't make it because they didn't know where their car was. Another time, I got a call, uh, it was actually a voicemail, at about 3 a.m. because it's time-stamped, saying that this person was sick. You could obviously hear the bar atmosphere in the background. They just wanted to give me a heads up. They wouldn't be in in the morning. As Business Insider reported a few weeks ago, Gen Z employees say their perceived laziness can be explained by the fact that they feel unfulfilled at work and that they're burnt out or unhappy with their wages or they're looking for a better work-life balance or some combination of these excuses. I'm not sure where to start with that, except to say you have to find meaning, purpose, and fun in your work. I mean, that's really the purpose of it. 
there's satisfaction by working hard. And we need to teach that. There's the contribution that you're making, the respect that you're earning, the connecting with others. You know, there is a lot of purpose other than just getting a paycheck. You know, work is working hard is just a part of our culture, or it should be, at least it was founded that way. And we have kind of coddled this generation into thinking that there's so many other outlets that you really need to be in control of your time, that all of these influencers online are making it look so easy just to reach the top without all the hard work. The social media platforms are giving this false sense of security and this idea that everybody wants to hear from you. They care about your opinion. They need to know what you're up to. And that's just not reality. You know, when you go to work and you have work friends, sometimes you see those work friends more than you see your family. Is that right? Well, it's just a part of life. And you can learn so much getting out and connecting with other people. Alexander Pope said, Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. Which brings me to why we're disappointed by our own expectations. It's our expectations that are causing our disappointment. And we need to instill at a young, young age with our children, hard work is a part of life. And we're missing the boat if we don't instill that early. We're setting them up for failure. Hard work can be meaningful and rewarding. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Instead of helping them figure out how to retire at 25, and start working for themselves, let's talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur, like what the risks are, how you can have everything that you want if you work hard to get it. Talk about the grass is not always greener. Maybe we should share some of the different shades. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, feeling satisfied personally or professionally comes from within. Your perception of any situation directly affects your reality. Take time to trace the source of your dissatisfaction and change your situation by adjusting your perception. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's through until the past was clear.